Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Dinner, Drinks, and Death. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Erin. And tonight for our meal, we have steak with oven roasted potatoes and asparagus. And we've paired this meal with red wine. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the infamous Theodore Robert Bundy. Can't wait gonna be super fun super exciting i'm gonna start off with his background his childhood and then we're just gonna go for there from there okay. ready okay i'm ready i'm so excited wine. <laughs> <laughs> born theodore robert cowell on november 24th 1946 in burlington vermont he was born to a young unwed mother named eleanor louise cowell at this time, of course, it's the 40s. Being an unwed mother is frowned upon. It's not acceptable. So her parents sent her to the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Vermont. On his official birth certificate, Eleanor listed Air Force veteran and salesman Lloyd Marshall. Later on, she claimed a man named Jack Worthington as the father. Lloyd Marshall, when he was asked about his relation to Ted, he completely denied any involvement and claimed that Ted was not his child. As for Jack Worthington, he doesn't actually exist according to any military records. There's absolutely no, there is no Jack Worthington. Um... So, yeah, because, like, authorities had looked into it, and there wasn't a single person in the Navy who was named Jack Worthington. After having her child, Eleanor was allowed to return home to her parents in Philadelphia. Originally, she did not intend to keep the child, but her father, Ted's grandfather, insisted that she bring him home. The plan was to raise Ted as if his grandparents were his parents and that his mother were her, was his older sister. Eventually, he discovered that this was all a lie and that the story his grandparents told everyone is that they had adopted Ted from an orphanage rather than revealing Eleanor was unwed. Other rumors, however, state that he was just digging around in the trunk of a car where he discovered his birth certificate. And when asked about it later in life, he claimed that it didn't bother him at all. He was like, oh, I'm totally fine with it. You know, whatever. He just brushed it off. Not likely. Exactly. Historians also believe that a cousin might have showed him his birth certificate and where it listed Eleanor as his mother, but the line for father was blank. But Brutal. Right. More on the family, there are several consistent reports that Samuel Cowell, Ted's grandfather, was actually his father, meaning that meaning Ted is the product of incestual rape between Samuel and Eleanor. Some people believe this is why she was so inconsistent with saying who the father was. However, it is important to note that none of this has ever been proven and that these reports and rumors are completely unsubstantiated additionally it was reported that samuel cow was abusive 
domineering, bigoted, and overall just a bully. There are also reports that he once threw Eleanor's sister down a flight of stairs just for sleeping in. He was also known to beat and abuse dogs and even took a neighbor's cat by the tail, swung it around his head, and threw it. Not cool. Yeah, this so is not was... a guy that you want as your child's role model. Exactly. He's a terrible dude. He's not the kind of person you want to have around, much less around kids. And speaking of role models, it's said that as a child, Ted actually looked up to his grandfather and saw him as a role model. He like idolized him. He wanted to be just like his grandfather. Yikes. Moving on, there is one report that at three years old, Ted gathered a bunch of kitchen knives and placed them around his aunt as she slept. And when she woke up, Ted was sitting just across from her on the bed laughing. That is terrifying. I just like to preface, if a child ever does that to me, you gotta throw the whole kid away. <laughs> Start over. No, thank you. Like, like what kind of three-year-old knows where the knives are kept? What kind of three-year-old can reach the knives? No. <laughs> it's gotta be... It's not going to be a good start to his life. That's no, no, no. <laughs> this is a red flag, I think. Red flag. Yes. Later on in 1951, Eleanor and Ted moved to Tacoma, Washington, where she married John Bundy. And John Bundy adopted Ted as his own son. Um, John and Eleanor also went on to have four more children, and it's said that Ted made no effort whatsoever to have any sort of relationship with any of them. Uh, he even said about his own family, quote, I grew up with two dedicated and loving parents in a Christian home where there was no drinking, smoking, gambling, fighting, or physical abuse, end quote. People who knew what? Go on, go on. Oh, people who knew Bundy growing up said he was a very materialistic person. He really cared about his looks, his background, and the image that he portrayed and presented to other people around him. And what he, he also really cared about what they thought about him as well. It's also thought he was ashamed of his stepfather's job. He was who John Bundy was, I believe, an army hospital cook. And Bundy was, like, super ashamed of it. He also seemed to really romanticize his childhood. He painted it as if it was all sunshines and rainbows, and he would boast about the things he did well. He went on, like, a tangent later, because he did a, a series of interviews later on in his life when he was in prison, and he was like, yeah, I was, I was champion frog catcher. I could catch all the frogs and people were like we don't care Ted tell us who you killed tell us where tell us what you did and he's like I caught frogs yeah definitely in the Bundy tapes he is talking up himself like to know oh, yeah like yeah. he he was athletic he was good looking he was the champion frog catcher he was hot stuff 
but he wasn't (laughs) he wasn't (laughs) he had a very idealized version of his childhood that he wanted to share with everyone he had his story that he wanted people to know and those who knew him said he went to church with his family every sunday his mother was kind loving his stepfather was a good man a really a really good man who loved all of his kids especially ted And childhood friend Sherry Holt said that growing up, the Bundy family were the have-not group. But overall, were a kind and loving family that did lots of things together. She also said that growing up, Ted had a speech impediment and was teased a lot for it. Additionally, in his early school years, Ted was said to be normal, good-looking, popular, social, and that he did well academically. So there's kind of two different views about how he was when he was younger. There's like the, he was kind of poor, kind of set apart from everybody else, kind of an outcast. And then other people say that he was popular and he fit in and he yeah. kind of it, it definitely goes back and forth a lot between how he saw himself and how everybody else saw him. True. It was also said that he, like you mentioned, he had a hard time fitting in with the other boys and Boy Scouts because he couldn't keep up with them and what the other kids were doing. He was known to enjoy building tiger traps out in the wooded area where all the neighborhood kids would play. And that one day a young girl fell into one of the traps he'd made and had the entire side of her leg cut open from how she landed on the pointed sticks. Oh, wow. Which, like, creeps me out. It is also rumored that at as young as 14, Bundy may have killed a neighborhood kid during some kind of sexual game out in the forest. But this has never been confirmed. Never been confirmed. And about his background, Bundy is quoted saying, quote, There is nothing in my background leading anyone to believe that I was capable of committing murder. Absolutely nothing. End quote. I think, well, according to, to his I, point of view. I think laying a bunch of kitchen knives around your aunt and laughing about it. I think that's yeah. something. Building tiger traps so that kids will fall into them is maybe something. But yeah. allegedly, he, allegedly. He was delusional about himself, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in his teen years... Bundy started reading and became absolutely fascinated with detective magazines that were full of stories of violent crime and how to get away with it. And later on, a psychologist said that Bundy received a lot of sexual release from reading these stories. Bundy himself also said that these stories led him to, quote, seek out violent pornography and more graphic kinds of material, end quote. Twice. And he kind of he kind of later on blames this as his early. Oh yeah, at the very end, uh, as a last whim, he blamed everything that he did. He blamed it all on pornography as being the reason for why he did what he did. But like he's he's just a bad person. (laughs) Totally. Twice in his teen years, he had been arrested for car theft but these crimes were expunged from his record when he turned 18. 
In high school, however, things were just a little bit different. His friends from high school said that he wasn't as popular, he became a little bit more awkward in social situations, and that he developed even more of a stutter. So he had a childhood friend who said he had a speech impediment, and so it's getting a little bit worse now. So he's probably starting to develop some more anxiety. He really wants to be this type that goes out and has a lot of friends mm-hmm. and is athletic and and is really smart. Like he wants so bad to be that that guy. Yeah. And high school is is rough. If you aren't part of the it crowd, you will get made fun of relentlessly for it. And he seems to be the type that takes this really personally. Oh yeah, yeah. He takes everything a little bit too personally. Moving on. Bundy, however, painted a different picture. He claimed that he was wildly popular. He said that he ran for student council president, played football with his many friends, and tried out for the track team and went skiing every weekend with a different group of friends. The truth was, he wasn't very athletic and was more of a loner. You know, besides you know, if we didn't know who Ted Bundy was, like how he turned out to be, this would actually be kind of sad. Just like the, the differing stories. Yeah. Yeah. How he, like, you, you know that he's not this way. You know he's not athletic and, and smart and playing football and have all mm-hmm. this. You know this, but yet he's trying so hard to convince other people that he is he's trying so hard to fit in and match that image and to make other people think of him what he wants them to think yeah despite all that he still did very well academically and upon graduating high school was accepted into the university of washington in 1967 He was a shy student and was extremely ashamed of his lower to middle class upbringing and felt that he had nothing to offer his peers, which is kind of relatable. I mean, with where I went to college, and it can be true for other people, no matter what college you go to, you kind of feel like, I think it's because it's a different academic setting from what you've been used to your whole life up until you start college. It's a different environment, and so you can kind of feel like, oh my gosh, am I, am I meant to be here? Am I even, like, worth being here? Like, am I smart yeah, enough to be here? you're just trying to figure out where you fit in and who yeah. you are and what you want to be and what, what you want to do with your life. Yeah. In 1967, he met a woman who was, is named Stephanie Brooks. This is not her real name. I am not divulging her real name because from the research I did, she changed her name in order to be disassociated from this entire case. And we're about to get into why. But yeah, she wanted nothing to do with this. So she changed her name. If you want to look it up, you can find it. It is out there. But we are not going to reveal her name here. Uh, Back to the girl. Bundy said, quote, she had a lasting impact on me. She's beautiful, very personable. She inspired me to look at myself and to become something more, end quote. And Stephanie, she came from a wealthier political family, a bit more higher class, well-known, well-liked. 
she was if you look at pictures of her she was a very beautiful woman with dark brown hair parted down the middle which that is important to note as we get into the murders later she on. sees everything that bundy is not oh yeah yeah he is she's everything that he's wanting to be in life she's from that higher class and has that higher class that easier life that he desperately wants so yeah everything that he wanted in life she had and he was so completely obsessed with her and her lifestyle the two of them dated for a while before she ultimately broke things off with him in 1968 after less than a year together Uh, she stated that he was immature and aimless in life she was also graduating and figured that her their relationship would run its course which is a perfectly reasonable and acceptable thing to do. She's graduating and going to continue on with her life elsewhere. It makes sense, you know? Right, they're going their separate ways. Yeah, and... They have different think, directions in life. That's fine. Yeah, and I think he also just put her on a pedestal and her, her lifestyle, too. He saw that as the ideal life and couldn't accept anything less mm-hmm. in blew it all out of proportion and just couldn't accept it when she was like okay bye yeah and he probably thought who are you to leave me me. (laughs) (laughs) right he's like i'm attractive everyone says so i have so many friends and i'm athletic and i'm I'm so great anyway (laughs) (laughs) this breakup absolutely destroyed him one of his brothers even said that Ted fell into a noticeable depression. And as someone who was usually so in control of his emotions, he appeared to be completely out of control after the breakup. He even dropped out of college after this. And it's very clear as we start to get into the murders, uh, Bundy definitely modeled his victims after Stephanie as they almost all had long dark brown hair parted in the middle and a good question to ask and something that's highly debated topic is whether or not this choice was intentional or if it was a subconscious decision because hmm. i think it can be argued both ways and i wonder if he did it on purpose or if seeing that type of hairstyle just seeing somebody who reminded him of her would just flip a switch in him <laughs> Making him feel compelled to act out or to just go into a fit of rage. Because it can be argued both ways. Both sides have very compelling arguments. Yeah, but didn't he kind of, like, seek out people when he was killing in, like, colleges and stuff? Like, he went to colleges. Maybe he was just seeking out a certain type. Well, that's that's the question. People wonder, was he actively searching for that specific type of person? Or did he happen to come across that look similar looking type of person? And did coming across them cause him to do that? Or did he specifically decide, I'm going to follow people who look like her? That's the question that that's the debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Again, in 1968, I think, he, he re-enters college. This time, he's still attending the University of Washington. Uh, 
uh, he gets his degree. He majors in psychology. And this time around, he was an above average student getting, he, he graduated with honors and he did well socially. He also started getting really into politics and he was super Republican. And in 1968, he worked at the Seattle office for Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and even attended the Republican National Convention in Miami. He went on to work for the chairman of Washington Republican Party, who off, who, sorry, he referred to Bundy as, quote, a believer in the system, end quote. And given the style of the time, which is 60s, 70s, we're going to say it's, it's the mid-70s right now. The look is hippies, long hair, kind of the, the flowing clothes, the flare jeans. Uh, Bundy, however, was described as, quote, a clean-cut conservative, end quote. Bundy also worked at a suicide prevention hotline in Seattle alongside Ann Rule. This is where they met, and they even became really good friends. Ann Rule, by the way, is a former police officer and aspiring crime writer. She wrote this book called The Stranger. She wrote a book called The Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy. And in her book, she describes Bundy as kind, solicitous of her safety, and, quote, seemingly empathetic, end quote. Continuing into politics, Bundy got a job on the Committee for Republican Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. His role was to spy on Evans' opponent and report back to him. He posed as a college student and got to shadow Evans' opponent to collect intel. After Evans won the election, Bundy was appointed as the special assistant for state Republican chairman Ross Davis. And in 1969, Bundy started a brand new relationship with a woman named Liz Kendall. Liz Kendall was a young, divorced mother and had a three-year-old daughter named Molly. They dated for about five years, and later on in interviews, Liz recalled that there were definite red flags in the relationship that she had ignored. In 1972, Bundy graduated from University of Washington on the honor roll, and in 1973, he was accepted into the University of Puget Sound. Also in 73, he went on a business trip to California for the Washington Republican Party. During this time, he reached out to his college girlfriend who had broken his heart. He presented himself to her as a changed man, saying he was well-liked, was well-known in political circles, and he changed his ways. He was driven, no longer immature, and that overall he had changed who he was for her. She was so impressed by how much he had changed that she immediately agreed to get back with him. The two of them rekindled a relationship. All the while, Bundy is still dating Liz and neither woman knew about the other. And this went on for quite a while. 
This is crazy. Yeah. Stephanie was constantly flying up to Washington several times to visit him. And during one of her trips up there, Bundy took her to dinner at Davis's home and introduced her as his fiance. The two of them even began talking about getting married and he eventually proposed to her. And after she said yes, this is in January 1974, he abruptly ends all contact with her. And almost a month went by until she was finally able to get into contact with him again. And she calls him, she asks him why he had ended things so suddenly. And he said, quote, I have no idea what you mean, end quote. So essentially, he's just ghosting her. Yeah, yeah. He essentially started this entire relationship again as a long con to make himself be someone, the one that she wanted, got her to fall back in love with him, got that validation from her, got the yes. And as soon as he got that validation that he was good enough for her, he gets his revenge on her by hurting her in the exact way that she did him. This is so sick and twisted. Like, it, <laughs> And it just shows his anger issues. He's out for revenge. Like, dude, you got the girl. I thought you wanted her. Just You should have just married her. <laughs> Why go through all that trouble? You know? He's got to get his. Yeah. Back in, anyways, back in Seattle, Bundy had dropped out of law school again. And instead, he was working as the assistant director at the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory. During this time, he wrote up a rape prevention pamphlet for women and even went as far as to ask Anne Rule for, co- quote, copies of her, sorry, bad copies of her stories on rape cases, end quote. He claimed that he was doing research and doing a whole study on rape victims and wanted her input, wanted the things that she had written about to help him in his quote-unquote research. Well, essentially, it is his research. Yeah, he's learning how to get away with it. Not not the kind of research that he's telling her, but it is, in fact, his little research. It's a type of research. Yeah. Okay, and now we are going to get into the murders. So it's the exciting part now. In 1974, at 27 years old, Bundy committed his first murder. On January 4th, 1974, 18-year-old Karen Sparks was asleep in her basement apartment. She was a student attending the University of Washington and woke up to Bundy violently beating her with a metal bar that he had taken from her bed frame. She had several roommates, all of whom were home at the time of the attack. They found her the next day and said that the metal bar had been jammed inside of her. So he just broke into her room? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. With roommates in the next room and everything... She survived the attack, but sustained brain damage and irreparable damage to her internal organs. 
on February 1st, 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy was his first victim who did not survive. She was out at a local bar with friends and had left early because she had a job announcing the ski weather reports for a local radio station and had to be up early the next morning. Bundy followed her home where she lived with four other roommates. Again, all of them were home. After she went to sleep at about midnight, Bundy broke into her room, which she shared a wall with some of her roommates. Uh, He immediately, using crowbar, beats her head in with it. There's blood everywhere. Bundy takes off her nightgown, hangs it up in the closet. He then redresses her in other clothing, takes a pillowcase, wraps it around her head, and takes the bed sheet, wraps her up in it, remade the bed, and took her with him out the window. So this is something that he does a lot, right? So he, like, dresses up his victims and goes back repeatedly. No? Yeah, well, yes, he does revisit his uh, victims. We're actually going to get into that in a little bit so just like chill a little bit <laughs> okay just, just chill out to me i will i will so he does all this all with people in the room right next to hers when she didn't arrive at work the next morning people became concerned her work called and her roommates answered they had no idea that she hadn't shown up for work they looked in her room and it was empty her bed was made It wasn't until they pulled back the covers and saw all of the blood and found her nightgown, blood-soaked nightgown, in her closet that they realized something had happened to her. The only part of her that was ever found was her jawbone. They had to use dental records in order to positively identify her. And this is another thing that you see a lot, and I'm sure you'll talk about and you'll (laughs) You've got a thing for the jawbone. He really, he really does. Mm-hmm. He really does. These next four murders are known as the Taylor Mountain Skeletons. And as we'll find out further into this, Taylor Mountain is a place that Bundy revisited many, many times. And he used it as a dumping ground for many of his victims. And we're going to get into those four murders now. Starting with, 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson was a student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. She was known to take off for a few days at a time, so it wasn't until six days later that people became concerned and that she was finally declared missing. She was killed on March 12, 1974, and Bundy actually claimed responsibility for Manson's murder and stated that some of the remains found on Taylor Mountain were hers but he refused to say what he did to her. Next is 18-year-old Susan Elaine Rancourt. She was a student at Central Washington State University in Ellensburg, Washington. She was incredibly smart, averaging a 4.0 in school, working several jobs to pay for school. And on April 17, 1974, At around 8 p.m., she was on her way to this meeting. Uh, This meeting was actually for a job opportunity, and it was the last time she was ever seen alive. Only her skull was found on Taylor Mountain. 
Next is 22-year-old Roberta Kathleen Parks. She was a student at Oregon State University. She was majoring in world religions. And on May 6, 1974, she had plans to meet with friends for coffee in the evening, but never arrived. She had been bludgeoned to death, and only her skull was found on Taylor Mountain. And it was over 250 miles away from where she was last seen alive. Next up is 22-year-old Brenda, Brenda Carol Ball. On June 1st, 1974, Brenda was last seen in a tavern parking lot talking to a man with his arm in a sling. She was known as a free spirit and her friends thought nothing unusual about her not contacting them for a few days. Brenda's skull was the first one found by students working on Taylor Mountain. And on those students on March 5th, 1975, a group of students, student foresters were marking trees on Taylor Mountain when they had found the skull of Brenda Ball laying in the woods. After calling the police who put on their own search and rescue, they discovered the remains of three other women just a hundred feet apart from each other. In all, the skeletal remains of six women were found at this dump site. The ones that they were able to identify being Linda Ann Healy, Brenda Ball, Susan Rancourt, and Roberta Parks. Just miles away, but still on Taylor Mountain, the bodies of Janice Ott and Denise Nasland were found. But we'll get into those murders in just a bit. And so, like I mentioned earlier, Bundy would continue he came back to Taylor Mountain a lot and he would visit the bodies to redress them put makeup on them would even shampoo their hair and would engage in necrophilia until the bodies were too putrid disgusting absolutely disgusting Bundy's next victim was freshman at University of Washington 18-year-old Georgianne Hawkins. In June of 1974, she was walking the one block from her boyfriend's dorm to her sorority house late at night when she came across Bundy. He was using fake crutches and had dropped his things and was asking her for help to pick them up. She agrees to help him and he mentions his car is just nearby and asks if she can carry his books to his car for him. Again, she agrees. She follows him. She opens the door to his beige Volkswagen bug to place the books down when she notices that the front passenger seat had been removed. Before she can say anything about it, he took out a crowbar that he had hidden in the wheel well and hit her over the head with it. He pushed her into the spot where the seat was supposed to be and drove off. She woke up and started going on about some Spanish test that he ha she had to take the next day. He pulled over, took her out of the car, and beat her with a crowbar. Her body has never been found. So this is interesting to me because, for one thing, like it has to be Ted Bundy that said essentially what happened here, because there's no other witness, right? Yeah. So it has to be Ted saying that she woke up. Yeah. 
that's interesting to me. And this is another thing that he does a lot where he pretends to have an injury. Oh, yeah. He makes himself look vulnerable to get women to trust him. Yeah, he would fake all kinds of injuries and then ask these women to help them by appealing to, to their better nature, their kindness. And he then he would take advantage of them. He would make himself seem vulnerable and harmless. And then just as he's got them reeled in, he would flip that switch and would just completely overpower them. And so, yeah. He, he just used their compassion against them. And he knew that if he made himself seem vulnerable and seem harmless, that these girls would be more willing to go with him. Because, and another th- what's important to remember here is he majored in psychology. He knows how to manipulate people into giving him what he wants. He knows how to use his good looks and his, his charm to get his way with people. Right. These next two murders occurred in broad daylight in front of about 50 to 60,000 witnesses. These are known as the Lake Sammamish murders. Lake Sammamish in Issaquah, Washington is, it's this huge state park that has all this water and beach area. And on July 14th, 1974, This place is super packed. All these families, there's all these people. Companies are doing their picnic lunches there. There's people boating, hanging out on the water, etc. It's the happening place to be right now. At around noon, 22-year-old Mary Osborne was approached by a good-looking man who introduced himself as Ted. She was sitting in a grassy area near tons of other people doing the same thing that she was when she was approached by this guy. He was seen by tons of witnesses and was described as wearing a white t-shirt, jeans, and had one of his arms in a sling. This man walked up to Mary and asked her to help him move his boat, which, like, what on earth makes you think a young girl is going to help you move a boat? Right. If somebody walks up to me and says, hey, help, can you help me move a boat? I'm just like, I will say literally any, I will pretend to be deaf to not, like, I'll, to avoid it. Even if I was mid-conversation with somebody, as this person walks up, I'm, like, talking. I'll be like, oh, I'm deaf. No, I can't hear you. Sorry. Yeah, like, that doesn't make any sense to ask a woman to help you move something. This Go place. ask the people down by their boats to help you right they're the boat people i'm not a boat person but it also sounds like he's starting to get cocky and make mistakes now so he's you know in front of lots of people he's telling his real name well that's that there's another huge debate about him as to whether he was this super smart guy or was he a complete idiot that's a huge debate because he would use his real name. He would introduce himself as Ted. I don't think that he was as smart as he pretended to be or as smart as a lot of people said he was. I think, I don't, he, was, yeah. I think he was intelligent and he, he thought things through ahead of time, mostly. But yeah. when he made mistakes, he made big mistakes. And I think his mistakes 
showed how cocky he is and how he was how he thought of himself as kind of invincible yeah yeah he he was I don't think he was as smart as he thought he was Mm -hmm. I think it was more of an ego thing him using his own name like that yeah it was it was definitely more of an ego thing so however she goes with him she follows him to his car but as they get closer she's noticed she's not seeing a bow and she mentions this to him and he's like oh yeah it's it's just up the road at my parents house he needs her help to get it from there bring it back to the lake and so she's she's like okay uh, she tells him, I, I can't really help you. She says that she had plans to meet with her family for lunch, but that she was already late. He apologizes to her, walks her back to the grass area, thanks her, and walks away. Just, like, lets her go. Wow. Yes. Later that day, he approaches 23-year-old Janice Ott. And something that's interesting with her... She's the only one of Bundy's victims that had blonde hair. The only one. Every If you look at photos of all of his victims side by side, they almost are all nearly identical. They have the same long brown hair part in the middle. They all look very, very similar. But it kind of makes sense at this point in the day, he's already tried to get somebody else and it didn't work. Yeah. Maybe he's just desperate to get somebody else. He's just desperate. He's going for the next person he can get to go with him. Yeah. Um, Janice was alone and only had her bike with her that day. He goes up to her, introduces himself as Ted, uses the same story about moving a boat. He just needs her help. And she agrees to go with him. They get to the car. And before she can say anything about there not being a boat, he punches her in the face, pushes her into the car, strangles her, and drives off. And it's believed he took her to a second location somewhere in the woods nearby where he tied her up and left her there. It was determined that she was alive at this time and was killed later. Her remains were found scattered in the area and she was decapitated. After leaving Ott, he returns to Lake Sammamish, continues asking women for help, and eventually approaches 18-year-old Denise Nasland. She was at the park with friends and had stepped away just to use the bathroom. He met her outside the bathroom, used the same story to ask for help, and she agrees to go with him. The only remains that were ever found was her jawbone and her femur. They also found the crowbar in that area as well. It was determined that after he abducted Janice and tied her up somewhere, he left to return to the park, abducted Denise brought her back to the same spot as Janice and terrorized them together. So it's been rationalized that one of the girls saw the other get killed first. And it happened, it just so happened that near to where Janice had been approached by Ted, there was a group of three women, one of whom overheard their entire conversation. She heard Bundy introduce himself as Ted She knew what his car was. She knew what he looked like. And tons of other people also heard him say his name was Ted. King County Police set up a tip line. They also released a sketch composite and a description of this Ted. And we're getting 
hundreds of calls a day. And I think one thing that's interesting to know about Bundy was how easily he could change his appearance. He's just got, he's one of those people, he's just got one of those faces where if he were to grow out his hair, facial hair, or vice versa, if he were to get a haircut, completely shave his face, he would look like a completely different person each time. Yeah, and even in just photos of him, like if he's looking in a particular direction, he looks completely different than if he's face. Yeah, yeah. Or he looks, yeah, he can look like anybody. Which was just crazy. And it's kind of, it's part of the reason why he was able to escape so many times, I think, is because he was able to change how he looked. And so people weren't sure who they had. Right. Yeah. Back to those tips. Uh, There are several key tips that went in. One was from Bundy's psychology professor at the University of Washington, who said that they had a guy in one of his classes named Ted that he thought was a little off. Another tip came from Ann Roll. And the last one came from his girlfriend at the time, Liz. She said the name, description, and the car all matched, and that he was exhibiting some weird behavior such as staying up all night, sleeping during the day, and being secretive about where he was going. She even said that she'd found weird things around the house. And around this time is when the Taylor Taylor Mountain schedule schedules skeletons. <laughs> around this time is when the Taylor Mountain skeletons started making headlines because they had just started being found. And we are going to end it here. And we'll get a part two going and it will be released whenever it gets released. Sounds good. All right. Can't wait.